You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What Brainwave. they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black leg. If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am. Streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning everybody, this is Annie for Solidarity Breakfast and it is a fine day outside. Uh, Very strange movements happening in the inner city, uh, parts have been blocked off uh, in uh, expectation of an onslaught of anti lockdowners or whatever, I don't know. Apparently uh, there's uh, word on the uh, internet that uh, these people have been told to bring weapons. (laughs) The reason why I know this is because uh, uh, a concerned uh, relative has uh, sent me a text telling me that I have to be careful on my way home because they've got weapons. And you sort of think to yourself... uh, uh, fighting an invisible uh, virus that is, uh, uh, you know, um, stealthily creeping across the uh, city uh, with uh, uh, angry mob seems like uh, anti-intuitive. But anyway, let's move on. We've got other things to talk about here Um uh, you would have caught up with the fact that Christian Porter, the uh, uh, ex-Attorney General who was uh, stepped aside from that uh, office and it was given over to that legal luminary, uh, Michaela Cash, <laughs> the woman who was found to not read her uh, uh, ministerial briefings when she went in to do an interview <laughs> on TV that that esteemed a brain. Uh, anyway, Christian Porter uh, had to uh, divulge his uh, pecuniary interests, and it, it was discovered that he um, had been given one million dollars by a blind trust, which meant that he he couldn't tell them who actually had given him the money to uh, cover his uh, legal expenses uh, in his uh, defamation suit against the ABC, um, which uh, was thrown out, in fact. Uh, He didn't have any um, leg to stand on, but, you know, it may proceed in some way. Uh, But uh, the PM said that uh, despite the uh, ministerial code of conduct, which uh, the MP himself had put in, uh, the PM, I mean, getting my MMPs mixed up, the Prime Minister had uh, instituted because uh, uh, there was so much uh, carry-on about uh, corrupt practices within his government. Uh, You know, he had to put on a nice suit and uh, put on his prefect uh, clothes and uh, act as if uh, they actually took it seriously. And when it came, when the horse came to the uh, jump, 
It failed because the Prime Minister under, uh, uh, you know, uh, complaint that uh, Christian Porter can't actually get away with not actually divulging who his uh, 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 financial supporters are like this. Uh, The Prime Minister decided he'd hide behind the bush of, oh, we'll have an inquiry, (laughs) which of course is ridiculous because it says quite clearly what he can and can't do. But that would be to... uh, not recognise the fact that this federal government actually is holding on by its fingernails because it it requires Christian Porter because it's only got a majority of one. And uh, with all the things that have happened, sometimes it's a bit difficult to remember the facts. <laughs> so when it was pointed out that they only had uh, a majority of one, it became quite clear why it was so important that uh, Christian Porter shouldn't be investigated. But anyway, by the by, uh, moving right along, the other uh, bit of news that came out of some of the foraging I did this week was that uh, the general election uh, prediction appears to be March, April, which might be important to you out there when you're uh, working out what your uh, strategies will be in relation to uh getting um, a better deal for the population. Often people uh, activate uh, themselves around federal elections. March, April seems to be the uh, general belief that that's when it's going to happen. But anyway, it has to happen before May. Uh, and the, of course, the big news, and which is something that Kevin uh, dwells on in This Is The Week That Was later on in the program, is the uh, new Boys Toys, which is uh, now nuclear-powered subs. Um, we, uh, we heard a couple of weeks ago about the use of the previous sub project by Tony Abbott to grab the PM ship by passing the actual by bypassing the actual appraisal process in matters related to national security spending, going with a French company besmirched with allocations of overcharging, bribery, etc. on a grand international scale. But Tony told us it was all okay because there would be jobs for South Australian shipbuilders. The original cost would be $24 billion for those who like figures. You might have noticed that when the um, present LMP Prime Minister, Morrison, stood on the podium last Thursday telling us about the forever partnership, a little like a Disney film byline for a princess animation like Frozen, the bill for the French sub had already reached $90 $90 billion, and it was already estimated that that project was going to cost $124 billion. Isn't that amazing? From $24 billion to $124 billion, and we're supposed to believe that this is a competent government. Anyway, we're starting again, says the Tweedledum impersonator. On Thursday, he said it. Um, And it's for our security interests. And he said it's complex. Freedom was thrown in. And perhaps most fulsome was his reference to our Pacific family because nuclear-powered subs would stabilise the region and we love our US and English brothers. Of course, if we were really worried about our Pacific family, we might show it over climate change as their islands begin to sink or with COVID by uh, offering a a concerted health 
response for the region, but no nuclear-powered subs, which will hit the water in, get a load of this, 2040 to 2050. We will be talking to Dr. Vince Scapatura from Macquarie University later in the program to chew over some of the issues of this AUKUS carry-on. Is that how you say it? A-U-K-U-S. AUKUS instead of ANZUS. We have to get used to our corral, our letters, to make sure that we get it right Um, and look, feel hip because we've got it all in our letter land. We will go to Fairfield, Sydney to hear a first-hand account of the police response rather than a health response given to Western Sydney citizens during the most recent COVID outbreak. I know that uh, Stick Together, we um, looked at some of the workers' issues, but I was absolutely fascinated by this um, uh, webinar that was... <coughs> Excuse me. Put on by um, Spirit of Eureka uh, just the other day. It was uh, focusing on teachers and nurses uh, in US, uh, New South Wales, and uh, it, there were some fairly harrowing stories. I have to say, the nurses are really under the pump. But this particular person, um, Andrew, uh, is a teacher at Fairfield. Um, Villa, Andrew Villa, he's a teacher at Fair, in Fairfield, or he lives in Fairfield, or has always lived in Fairfield, and he gives a first-hand account of what it was like to basically be under military rule, <laughs> um, uh, what it was like for the people who lived there, and potential consequences of treating the people in the West in this way. And the fact that uh, they have been so under-resourced in a medical sense for years, even though it's the largest population in the whole of New South Wales, it's the most underfunded when it comes per capita to health resources. It's an extraordinary story. Um, I had been wondering what it was like because uh, it was very concerning to realise that the New South Wales government had taken Lord, a, Lord, a law and order uh, idea, um, approach to a health issue and targeted a p- particular uh, local e- uh, area networks. Um, I, I mean, you know, it's obvious that uh, some, it could only end in tears. Uh, we're, so we're going to listen to a first-hand account of a citizen in one of the western suburbs. We're also going to go down to the um, coast. We're going to go down to the south coast to hear from someone from, about uh, the concerns around the offshore uh, gas exploration going on near the Twelve Apostles along the Great Ocean Road. Uh, Kevin, as I said, gives us an overview of a quiet week in COVID land. And we finish, as I said, with Morrison's monster plan to save the universe. Um, Nuclear-powered subs. You're with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast on the best station on earth, 3CR. A message from Victoria's community sector. I'm looking forward to not worrying that my patients are going to die of COVID. To no one else being separated from their mum in aged care. I'm looking forward to our wedding and having our family and friends from overseas here with us. I really want to see my mum. I'm looking forward to being able to welcome guests without a mask on. To having all the sports back to normal so that my family members can come and watch me play. I look forward to performing in front of a big crowd again. So please, get vaccinated. Please get vaccinated. Please get vaccinated. Let's get back to the good things. I ask you to get vaccinated. For all of us. 
please get vaccinated. A message from Victoria's community sector. A 3CR supporter. If you're a renter experiencing hardship due to the pandemic, you can check now to see if you're eligible to apply for the Victorian government's new one-off rental relief grant worth up to $1,500. To help you, Tenants Victoria have put together an eligibility checklist. This will make it easier for you to assess whether you're eligible to apply for the grant, which is paid as a contribution towards rent. There are some steps involved to qualify for the grant. See the checklist for more information and visit the Tenants Victoria website for further details on how to apply. Go to tenantsvic.org.au and search for Rent Relief Grants. Tenants Victoria is a 3CR supporter. Health for Profits is a campaign to oppose the Liberal Party's reckless drive to reopen, which threatens the health and safety of Australia's poor, working class and Indigenous communities. We demand an immediate return to a zero-COVID elimination strategy before it's too late. Join us for online forums, activism and campaigns. To find out more, follow Health Before Profits Vic on Facebook, Twitter or Instagram. Health Before Profits is a 3CR supporter. Um, so, look, I want to start by saying that I'm speaking on Darug land. Um, I'm a resident of Fairfield, uh, born and bred, and, and continue to live here. I work as a high school teacher um, in the neighbouring suburb, which is about six kilometres away from my house, but outside of my five kilometre radius, which I'm not allowed to attend without a permit from the state government. Um, I guess I speak initially as a resident of Fairfield purely by the fact that <clears throat> our community was singled out. We were singled out early in the lockdown and pandemic response. Um, and we were particularly singled out, I think, as a and, and labelled by the state government as a non-compliant community. And that's deeply problematic. And I think that um, that needs to be explored somewhat. Fairfield is a community where 60% of the community are born overseas. 20% of the community have... Uh, education which is equivalent to year nine or lower. We are perennially twice the unemployment rate of the national average. And 40% of the residents of Fairfield are tradies or labourers. The restrictions that were put upon this community early on in the uh, lockdown um, hit hard, hit very hard. Rather than a health response, this community received a policing and authoritarian response. A day after the announcement that we'd had very special treatment in Fairfield, police were on our streets in numbers that I've never seen before. And growing up here, I'm quite used to seeing a very particular form of policing that we experience that I don't think necessarily is experienced by the rest of this city. However, I'd never seen police horses riding down the main street of Fairfield. I'd never seen the police chopper hover all day, all night, from 5.30 in the morning till 12.30 a.m., shaking our house, 
who knows what they're looking for. I've never seen drones, unmanned vehicles flying overhead in acts of surveillance. I've never seen highway patrols snaking through suburban streets. And it made me question what this response was ultimately going to be about. I thought we were in a health crisis. However, what we were being presented with was a total overbearing, repressive state apparatus. The irony of all of that is, on the 29th of May, the ABC reported a nine-month study that had undertaken looking at funding of southwestern Sydney local health area. And that, that study had found 17 recommendations, and the primary one of which was immediate cash injection into this region. This region, the local health area, services the largest population across New South Wales. However, it's one of the lowest funded per head capita. So we're talking about May. Three, four months later, look at the crisis we're now in. Fairfield Hospital itself has no cancer ward, doesn't have cardiac specialists, doesn't have diabetes specialists, doesn't have chronic health specialists. There's no MRI. It doesn't have electronic medical records. The maternity ward can't provide epidurals. So Fairfield Hospital, which services 200,000 people, is barely an outpost of Liverpool Hospital, which is considered our tertiary hospital. If something goes wrong in the maternity ward, you've got to jump on an ambulance and get carted off to Liverpool. However, Fairfield was labelled as a place where others from different cultures couldn't comply with health orders. We were told we had to be tested every three days if we worked outside of the area. What that meant was people waiting till 4am to be swabbed so they could go to work. There were lines that went for kilometres outside testing centres across the area. And we have to ask why, you know, and I think it's tempting to say, you know, the state government not funding public health services, you know, it's the classic neoliberal lack of funding for social services. But I think it, the problem goes deeper than that. I think what is evident here is a perpetual crisis of the state. What's the function of the state? And if the function of the state in a crisis is to get us through this crisis, why are we being provided with nothing but hardcore policing, authoritarianism, military in the street? I think the state is really struggling to find legitimacy in the current period. And I think by promising the world that it could stop a pandemic, which it clearly couldn't, it's then manifested in a brutal policing of southwestern Sydney with an other that could be so easily disregarded and thrown to the side. I think I often get asked, you know, what could we do differently? And I think I look to um, what's happened locally. Dozens and dozens of volunteers locally have really led a response. They've gotten out in the community, a community that has, you know, 70 different language groups, So I'm speaking of the local council who's mobilised its scant resources to try and provide some, some relief to the local community here. They've pulled every staff member that they've got available at their disposal. They've repurposed the gyms and recreation centres to package food for people who are stuck in isolation. The community here 
has been totally abandoned by the state government. And it's shameful. With regards to a response, I think the response must be community-led. I want to finish with a quote. The quote comes from a unconventional place, and that's TikTok. A gentleman who goes by the name of Yonan333 said the following. Who do you know from Fairfield who works in an office in the city? We are essential workers. And if you think you can shame us and embarrass us, you will never shame us or embarrass us. We are working class people. We are fair people. We work for our money to feed our families, to feed our kids. And as he was delivering this speech, he was spotting a police helicopter hovering above his house. So I'll leave it there and we'll open up for questions. I've got an, a question for Andrew what, from, from um, Kane McQueen. What is the New South Wales Teachers Federation doing to support teachers in Fairfield, Fairfield and Liverpool and negotiating in terms of conditions during the pandemic? And thanks for the question, Comrade Kelvin. Long time no see. Um, yeah, look, I think it, there's a few dimensions to the answering that question. I think the first one is that the Federation, I think, was successful in, in accessing Pfizer for LGAs of concern, um, which I think is, is, you know, quite important um, and, and, and quite reassuring for a lot of the teachers that I work with, at least, you know, if, if I can speak from the ground as their Federation representative. Um, I said, uh, additional to that, I think Federation's strong resistance of the government's attempt of a, a premature return, I think, has been critical um, in, in resisting Gladys's um, desire to have the HSC go ahead as if it's some panacea, you know, and some sort of rescue moment and evidence of her strong woman capacity to manhandle a pandemic, you know. I think that's been really important that Federation was able to hold that line and unite around that. I think more specifically... Uh, I think it's been difficult. Um, look, for the most part, schools in this part of Sydney just have not really had students attending, okay? Some primary schools have had very very minor attendance, but I would say argue that, from my understanding, most secondary schools, you're lucky if you've got one or two kids on site at any given day early in the term, and that sort of just, you know, whittles down to nothing, um, which is sensible and, and, I guess, also reflective of the community's response. Um, so that's how I pr predominantly answer that question. Um, I think it leads into a broader question that I think is worth considering as we move forward together. And I think what's apparent to me is that there's a natural um, potential for an alliance emerging between teachers and um, nurses around this moment. And I think that both of our unions probably don't make enough of that. And I think that more needs to be made where possible because, you know, in many respects, if I sort of reflect on my team's experience, I've been um, supervising a, a learning and support team at my school and our responsibility has been to contact disengaged learners um, at our school. And so we kind of deal with the social impact of what we're hearing from the healthcare professionals. Um, every day I get reports from my team of another family that's gone down, it's all positive. Um, and we have to wrap around that, that family and that household and, and sort of do social outreach. Um, it's not even teaching at that point. It's really, you know, frontline wellbeing care for, for young children. Um, which is really hard. 
and really draining on 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 those teachers and and learning um, support learners and and um, teachers aides. Um, and I think that there's a natural alliance there. I mean, we've essentially been abandoned in this moment by the state government. And I, I would like to to hopefully advance a conversation at some point, perhaps not tonight, of where there is an organic relationship between teachers and nurses around this moment um, that could be taken advantage of and exploited to really press this state government because I think that they're a lot weaker than they perhaps appear um, on the surface. So I've gone off on a tangent, Kelvin, but I'm sure that you'll indulge that. Thanks, Andrew. Look, we are really close to the end of our time and we've got a lot of questions. Um, uh, Andrew Goll from um, the AEU South Australia asked, what's been the impact, your experience of the impact on students and staff? I think you've uh, answered a tiny bit of that, but um, just very, very quickly, could you answer that one? Yeah, I can. Look, teachers have hit the wall this term. There's no question about it. It's impossible really to imagine how you could teach readily under the current conditions. Um, teachers are trying to run online learning. Uh, at a school like mine, a third of the kids don't have the capacity to learn online. So we are compiling and giving access to, you know, 300 book packs a fortnight so kids can do learning from home. That requires my learning and support team to make thousands of phone calls this term to arrange for the collection of those book packs. Um, we've lost contact with kids who are high risk. We get wellbeing concerns delivered to us by the phone and then we're, you know, having to do mandatory reporting around that and everything is late and hard. Um, as I've said, we've had community members in our, our, our um, school community who have passed away, unfortunately. We've had parents pass away and the burden is, is immense. And I think that... Um, the recovery from, from this moment will take many, many months. And I don't imagine it's as simple as kids returning next term sometime and everything being okay. It will take a long time for us to recover. Um, so, I mean, that's in a nutshell, I think, the impact. I've got one more question for Andrew. The far right, epitomised by Clive Palmer and Murdoch and his sky mob, a deliberate a manipulating and have been on the front foot, encouraging the so-called freedom protests. What's your response to those taking part? How do we heal this deliberately sown division? Um, it's a complex question, Lindy, I really do believe. And I think... You know, my take on that, particularly the, the large rally that took place in Sydney in August, um, featured a lot of people from southwestern Sydney. There's no question about that. And they were people who um, were without employment, who had experienced a brunt of the over policing, and were, in many respects, quite organic in their protestations at the very beginning. I mean, there were little sort of manifestations in Bankstown and other locales of resistance to, to the public health orders that were deeply unfair. I think it's complicated in the sense that I don't think there's a natural alliance between the far right and the working class. I think that um, what it really demonstrates to me is there's a massive poverty in the so-called left 
in, in its ability to reach out and connect with working class and multicultural communities, to be frank. Uh, I think um, decades of erosion of social institutions, which um, we would have anticipated would have provided leadership in moments like this, have really come to bear upon all of us. You know, I, for me, it's been a massive wake-up call. Um, and the first opportunity I get, I will be trying to generate some sort of community-based forum in Fairfield to draw some lessons that can develop a collectivist response that um, advances the, the needs and requirements of the working class in this area. I think that's really critical. I think that our absence in this space has meant that we've left um, this community entirely vulnerable and, and preyed upon this um, you know, nonsense messaging around so-called freedoms. Um, so that's a real concern. And I just wanted to sort of add perhaps this notion that there's not enough money around um, to adequately fund hospitals or, in my case, the schools. Um, I can only hazard a guess at what it costs in terms of the policing operations currently taking place in this state. Keeping that helicopter over southwestern Sydney 24-7 essentially is alone tens of thousands of dollars a day, okay? Um, an incident breaks out, and people have seen this on social media, where somebody gets uh, harassed and arrested around a perceived public health order breach. And before you know it, you've got 40 or 50 police, 40 or 50 police surrounding that person. I mean, that is just remarkable, right? So what is that costing per day? Um, I bet that police overtime hours are through the roof and the, the bill here is going to be huge in terms of the policing. And so I'm, I'm just not buying it. There's no money for public health or public education for that matter. Just there's just absolute bullshit. It's a question of priorities. And um, clearly they've policed their way through this pandemic. And we've heard enough, I think, you know, to, to evidence that from the healthcare professionals in our, in our midst today um, to, to show us what that actually means on the ground. Hi, this is Katie from Little Birdie and you're listening to 3CR 855 AM. We need your help to support public radio and your local music scene. Grandfather walked this land in chains A land he called his own He was given another name And taken into town He got special treatment Special treatment very special treatment My father worked a 12-hour day As a stockman on the station The very same work But not the same pay As his white companions He got Special treatment, special treatment, very special treatment. Mother and father loved each other well, but together they could not stay. 
They were split up against their will Until their dying day They got special treatment Special treatment Very special treatment Mama gave birth to a stranger's child A child she called her own Strangers came and took away that child To a stranger's home She got special treatment Special treatment Very special I never spoke my mother's tongue I never knew my name I never learned the song she sung I was raised in shame I got special treatment Special treatment Very special treatment Yeah, we got special treatment Special treatment Very special treatment You're back with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast and uh, before we leave that report about uh, a first-hand account of being in Fairfield, uh, it, the idea of having a helicopter uh, over your house from 5am to 12 midnight is so appalling. Uh, I have memories of uh, a long time ago I went on a demonstration to uh, Baxter uh, and it was in the middle of the desert, basically. It was the refugee uh, uh, centre out of Baxter. And uh, we were there in the camp, uh, you know, a bivouac, basically a camp. And the uh, there was a, a police helicopter flying over the top of us uh, with lights uh, during the night. And it was incredibly freaky, I'll have to say. And um, I was thinking about the people in Fairfield and those suburbs uh, where... So many people come from other countries and imagine that those people have actually come from uh, uh, war, uh, uh, theatres of war effectively. Um, how incredibly um, frightening that whole atmosphere must have been. Uh, just the noise, just the noise, absolutely outrageous. But we're going to move on now. We're going to, we've got Belinda Bags on the line and uh, Belinda is from a Surface for Climate. G'day Belinda, how are you? Hi, good, thanks. How are you? Yeah, good to talk to you. Now, uh, the reason for why I'm following you up is uh, there's been uh, quite a, a lot of uh, concern around um, the uh, offshore uh, exploration for gas in the Otway Basin and uh, particularly focused on the Twelve Apostles. Uh, the, it, it's a, a big uh, tourist area, but uh, also there are other ramifications. Can you give my listeners an idea of what's going on. Yeah, sure. So just recently, over the last um, six to 12 months, as part of the government's gas-led recovery, they've decided to cut up 
massive swathes of ocean in the Otway Basin area, which is sort of from that Cape Cape Otway, just um, west of a, of Apollo Bay, all the way over, you know, beyond the South Australian border, um, and all the way out to areas you know, reaching as far as King Island, to drill for new gas, um, which, as we know, is a fossil fuel, and the latest is um, has been a proposal to vertical drill under the 12 Apostles Marine oh, Park, <laughs> which is absolutely insane. Especially um, since they're, they're actually quite fragile. It's sandstone. Exactly. And there's actually not even 12 left anymore. No, I think right. we're down to like eight or something already. <laughs> so, I mean, they do drill quite a fair way under the surface, so it wouldn't necessarily disrupt the structure of the Apostles themselves, um, and I believe that the drilling is also slightly west of the actual apostles, but it is in that marine park, and it's a marine park for very specific reasons, because, you know, there's very vag- very valuable ecosystem there, there's marine animals found in the Southern Ocean that aren't found anywhere else on Earth, and we're already experiencing these climate impacts, and of course, drilling for new fossil fuels in a climate emergency is you know, it's very concerning. Yeah, it's, it's the idea of the disrespectful nature to, uh, uh, disrespect for nature in pursuit of a resource which actually is not necessary. Completely. It's definitely not necessarily. We have all the solutions that, you know, we need at our fingertips. It's just a matter of implementing them and not investing in, you know, new fossil fuels, which are now a thing of the past. Now, of course, um, that area is, I mean, it is a tourist attraction, but it's also quite isolated. Uh, I mean, you—I mean, people going there, I mean, it gets a high le- a traffic of uh, tourism. But uh, you as a surfer, you, you probably have quite a, a closer intimate knowledge of uh, the area along the coast there than uh, most people. Can you tell us a little bit about your crew and uh, how you guys got involved in this? Yeah, so... Um as you mentioned, I'm a surfer and absolutely love the ocean. I've been surfing for over 30 years now and it's really everything to me. And I have a 10-year-old son and it's something that I want him to be able to, to enjoy. Um, you know, surfing in the beach is really part of what brings together our community. Um, you know, it's a place to meet, it's a place to enjoy nature and really spend time with family as well as, Many of those small towns, they have thriving thriving fishing industries as well. So, you know, it is a place of, of economy as well. So we just absolutely love it. And being down west of Cape Otway in the Otway Basin, like every surfer can tell you that it is wild and it is scary when you're out there in the ocean. There's so much intense power and so much more wildlife that you're definitely very, very exposed. And so... Um, a lot of us are really concerned about the risks that, that drilling, further drilling are going to have in that area. I mean, some of those swells are just terrifying and there's a lot of cliffs. So if there was to be any sort of leak or a spill, it's also extremely concerning. The, uh, is there, um, uh, can, can you give us an idea of uh, what kind of a response there has been to the... There's been a variety of protests. I know that Extinction Rebellion has run several protests to raise awareness. Um, can you give me any idea of the response that you've had? 
Oh, uh, yeah, I mean, us ourselves at Surface of Climate, we've had a really, like, a, a big response where people were just outraged to think that in 2021 we're still moving ahead with drilling in such pristine, beautiful areas when we need to be protecting the coast as much as we possibly can. So we've had a really big response. We've got a petition up that's got thousands of signatures on it. I know there's other organisations out there, such as Extinction Rebellion and... Um, you know, Surfrider Foundation, as well as the Greens have just put through a disallowance bill in Parliament. Uh, so if anybody out there is listening, like, you know, jump on and email your state MP in the moment at the moment and let them know that you don't want this to go ahead because there's still a chance of, of stopping this drilling further through the 12 Apostles Marine Park. Thanks there's you. also been yeah. a few protests as well. There was a seismic ship uh, that is currently out off King Island at the moment doing further seismic testing, which is to locate more drill targets for oil and gas. Um, and there was quite a few paddle-out protests around the ship. There's been you know, a lot of community members who've been writing in, taking all the formal processes of you know, the environment plan submissions, speaking to the companies themselves, in opposition to this and most of the community's concerns have all gone unheard and unanswered. What's the company's name? Um, so there's a few companies that are stakeholders in this. The main one on the Victorian side is Beach Energy. So they currently operate um, down there at the moment and they're looking to expand and they're also the company who's put forward the proposal to drill from the across the 12 Apostles Marine Park. Um, and over in King Island, it's Kokono Phillips, which is an American company. So, um, yes, not 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 our uh, most favourite people at the moment. <laughs> yeah, it's funny, you know, because um, having uh, come from that area, I followed up another story which was uh, related to exploration, and because uh, there's been some off offshore drilling for a while down there, uh, you know, like over. Uh, 20 years. This is a new set of uh, looking for gas. But um, one of the off, uh, besides the environmental concerns, is this interesting uh, byproduct, which was that uh, uh, Port Campbell, for example, which was always a very sleepy kind of um, fishing village, suddenly got a whole lot of, uh, well, quite a few uh, well off workers uh, from um, the offshore drilling and the amenity of the town uh, increased and the rates went up and the offshoot was that people who'd lived there for a long, you know, generationally now got priced out of living in their own location. Yeah, it's a sad, sad reality when that happens and, you know, we are aware that the industry there does employ people, like obviously new people coming in to work there, but it, it still does service and, and provide employment for part of that town. Um, so, you know, I don't I don't necessarily think saying no, 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 stop this entirely is is the best way, but like instead let's let's create a renewable energy hub so all those people can can still maintain jobs and you know, you would hope that that local employment and local benefit would definitely be greater than anybody coming in 
you know, from outside the town because being priced out of where you live is a very sad reality at the moment. Yeah, it's a, a bit, people. it's quite a complicated area, uh, uh, issue, isn't it? I mean, when they talk about, you know, economic, moving ahead economically, uh, you know, who, who for? And uh, also, uh, why uh, destroy the environment when you're actually getting the tourist dollar? Oh, exactly. And that's the other thing is that if we turn all these beautiful locations along the, tour- along the Great Ocean Road into giant gas fields and industrialise the horizon and also place, you know, some of the wellheads are visible. Um, this particular wellhead from the, the 12 Apostles proposal is visible from the Great Ocean Road because it is actually on land. Like, mm. what what's that going to be doing for our tourism? You know, <laughs> like, drive down and see the 12 Apostles mixed in with all these gas fields. Like, what? <laughs> what are they mm. thinking? It's not necessarily a bonus for the local community at all. That, that's fascinating because uh, if anybody's been down that way, the whole point of that whole vista is that it has this sense of release, doesn't it? Yeah, completely. Yeah, you're definitely like off the beaten path, like very, you know, you're very remote. You lose cell phone service in a lot of locations and um, yeah, so so driving driving through there with, with industrialisation would definitely take away everything that, that, that the feeling offers from being down there. So you suggest that uh, people should uh, uh, um, find out what the Greens are up to, uh, look up your um, web page. I presume you've got a web page or uh, something. Yeah, we have, a, we have a petition up at surfaceforclimate.com. Um, and you can go on there and sign a petition opposing new offshore gas in the Otway Basin. And then, yeah, at the moment, if you live in Victoria, get on get on the phone or your email and uh, contact your local state MP and let them know that you definitely don't want this to go ahead. Thanks, Belinda. Thanks for talking to us. Great. Thank you. Have a Well, I love the Lone Ranger, and I love that Dennis Law. Him and George Best, I sure knew how to kick a ball. I wanted to be a cowboy, and learn to crack a whip. Stand up in that lonely street, to six guns on my hip. Along the mighty Beatles came, and everyone went, ah! They could play and sing and everything, and of course that John could draw. Well, that was it for me. I never once looked back. Tricks to learn and waves to catch. I had a plan of attack. Are you looking at me? Are you looking at me? Are you looking at me? Are you looking at me, pal? headed south where the surf came crashing in from black and white to colour from innocence to sin it was summer in December blowing heat waves in my mind people talking funny some cruel and some were kind from the crackle of the cane to the frown of a big black snake from the breakers at Bondi and down to Walliger Lake from the sound of a million fly screen doors closing on the past, like that chimney the fires couldn't burn, 
I was built to last. your dreams. You can always put your spurs back on, but save them for Halloween. You're better off heading north or somewhere you've never been. Hi, I'm Stuart. Hi, I'm Marita. We are the Orb Weavers, and you're listening to 3CR 855 AM on digital radio. And streaming at 3cr.org.au. A weak solidarity, Bricky Team listener, when, oh dear, what a pity, what a pity. Thursday morning, four-page lift-out in the Troubluwazi Capitalist Review promoting South Troubluwazi with one headline, Train-Killing Boom in the State Creates Employment Opportunities, including the exciting news that the $90 billion and growing French submarine fleet would create 4,000 direct jobs and lots of other things. Oh dear, what a pity. Before the ink was dry, like magic, 4,000 jobs just disappeared. Big Supremo scuttled them more latch son, a.k.a. Scummo, who loves being photographed giving people the COVID elbow, while nowhere near it gave France both the elbow and the finger. But it's not all bad news. Instead, the billions will go to the US of the UN of the US of the world's merchants of death, with the added bonus of fun, fun, fun nuclear reactors thrown in. U.S. of Big Supremo Joe Biden Capital living up to his name on behalf of U.S. of Capital and making a strong, very, very strong bid for Con Man of the Year, 
convincing his naive victim scuttle them to spend billions of true blue Aussie taxpayers' money to support the US of defence of its corporate interests. Poor naive scummer should have seen through the con act when Joe quite blatantly declared True Blue Aussie was spending all these billions to protect the US of. And the con act could have come undone when Joe couldn't even think of Scummo's name. Not a good look for a con man. Lucky he had a willing victim. Uh, hang on, Mr. Supremo, it's either Kevin or, or Julia. No, no, probably not Julia. <laughs> At which point he cracked a very funny homophobic joke. Uh, no, probably not Julia, a uh, Tiny or Malcolm or uh, uh, someone called Scummo. J- just say down under, Mr. Supremo, and, and don't forget it's not the one next to Germany there. It's kind of far west U.S. of. Scuttle them dashed down excitedly to his congregation and laying on hands and talking in tongues, proclaimed the whole country had joined the nuclear family, that bedrock of decent, dear baby Jesus society. Unless, of course, they are evil, no proper papers, queue-jumping, illegal, boat people, criminal families, and Scummo's Christianity showed us how to treat them. Same morning in the Capitalist Review, three authors of a U.S. of Studies report wrote... While the Trublavasi government remains steadfast in its refusal to concede Beijing's political demands, it does not want to escalate the situation, risking additional restrictions on exports. Oh dear, what a pity again. Again, before the ink was dry, any hope of not escalating that risk had flown the coop. Showing the common sense and foresight and brilliant strategic thinking of Scuttle Them and his Minister for Being Offensive and Trained Killing, Constable Peter Duffer, and Minister for Going Overseas All the Time and being a perfectly good little prefect, Marie's Payne in there. Although I reckon we can excuse Pete because thinking requires thinking. Suppose there's something appropriate in sinking billions and billions of taxpayers' hard-earned on nuclear-powered trained killer merchandise that spends most of its life at the bottom of the ocean, along with our money. So even if the radioactive trained killer subs follow history and don't work too well, at least our money will be submarine. Oh, and lots more of it will go to France. That's why I knew Lord Rupert of Wapping, and particularly his Wapping Sin, would excoriate the government for tearing up a contract and wasting billions of taxpayers' money, given the hysteria when and continuing, when the pejorative Dan State government tore up the East-West Link contract, foisted on it by the previous caring business class party government on the eve of the election. The most irresponsible proof that the pejorative Dan had no idea how the greatest little economic order of them all works. Irresponsible, irresponsible, irresponsible waste. Well, hang on. Mm, Obviously, this is different because amid the whopping scene's 100% support for now getting less for more, the, the only mention of tearing up the contract is a Lord Rupert Lackey's comment praising Scuttle them for cutting our losses. So there's obviously a major difference that somehow escapes us, or certainly me, as a novice in how the greatest little economic order works. Oh, and we don't even need to say this, but Socialist Party Supremo and would-be big Supremo, Anthony All-Being-Uzi, supports Scummo and Pete, but with a very important caveat, that True Blue Aussie doesn't adopt nuclear energy. Which just might cause him a few problems, as that repository of revolutionary thought, the AWU, Australian Workers Undermined, immediately called for Trublowozzi to go nuclear.
Why would Troubler Wazzy be the odd man out of nations with nuclear submarines? Union Secretary Dan- Daniel Welsh on them made sense. And direct quote, no embellishment. If we cut this off as an option, we will be letting loud scaremongers triumph over the environment and our economy. Dear me, those bloody loud scaremongers. Look, Constable Duffer couldn't have said it better, and speaking of the environment, which apparently can only be saved by having the capacity to irradiate the planet and the bottomless costs won't see the peace-loving, fully-armed nuclear saviours ready to frighten the shit out of China until roughly 2050, the same timescale for which Scummo and the team can't quite commit to saving the planet anyway. So it might just be all academic and there'll be nothing to save, a planet inhabited by nothing but nuclear reactors. Now, of course, we have to pay for all of this somehow, along with all the corporate welfare that has ballooned even more exponentially thanks to COVID and the billions we spend on consultants to do jobs the public sector used to do, for instance, until governments discovered just how inefficient those public servants are. Thank goodness the big transnational consultancies are there to help us out at their most reasonable billion-dollar fees. And the good news is... The team, led by big economic guru Josh Friedem Icebergs, has unearthed where those savings can be made. Order workers and welfare recipients who got JobKeeper and JobFinder to pay it back because the government hates people ripping off, even if they didn't rip off, because being non-corporate welfare recipients of welfare, they must have ripped off, whereas Josh didn't even need to include a clawback clause in his JobKeeper legislation for caring employers because he knew they would never dream of ripping off. And big savings from the NDIS because the National Disability Insurance Scheme is out of control. We must make cuts if it is to survive. People with disabilities destroying the national economy. Selfish, selfish, selfish people with disabilities. And clearly the government, Josh and Scummo and the team, wanted to survive. But it can't survive if we have to spend money on it. Money we need for those nuclear underwater thingies. See, one problem they point out is that too many people are using the NDIS. So the answer is obvious. We need less people with disabilities. It's also just possible there may be too many women in the world, as too many women keep attacking Scummo and the team for not doing enough about equality at all levels. When the government, as an example, boasts how it has adopted the recommendations of the Women at Work report by its Sex Discrimination Commissioner, as if there is sex discrimination, but goodness, the government points out it has adopted a massive five recommendations out of just 66 And yet, thankless, thankless women turn that massive positive on its head and accuse the government of not adopting a mere 94% of the recommendations, showing some people just can't be pleased. Oh, if you want a question by Matt's okay, it's only 93.8%. Harking back a week, what a surprise to learn officially that Trublawazi spies preserving liberty, freedom and democracy had assisted the good old CIA to undermine the Chilean economy and democratically elected government of the murdered Salvador Allende to install the butcher General Pinchip shit and bring the liberty, freedom and democracy of murder, torture, disappearances, imprisonment and displacement to the Chilean people who got the election wrong. 
We can only hope Pinchip she'd helped return the favour by helping the CIA two and three years later undermine the socialist government here when we also got democracy wrong. Also mentioned recently, poor Santos us the prophets complaining that we need lots more coal seam gas in eastern Trublowazi and how its attempts to help out with its Narrabri proposal keep getting thwarted by all these pesky environmentalists dragging it before the courts. The same loud scaremongers upsetting Daniel Welsh on them. So what bad luck again? Poor Santos us has been tossed a 373.5 grand fine plus costs for nine breaches of its license even before it's had approval. Unsealed boreholes, boreholes in the wrong locations and even bulldozing access tracks where they shouldn't, creating loss of habitat, breaks in ecological connectivity and disturbances to the ecosystem. God, it seems the courts have just got it in for them, doesn't it? Let's hope those loud scaremongers don't think this might indicate it could be worse if they actually had approval. After all, anyone can make a small mistake, or uh, nine small mistakes. Finally, a beautiful poem to end the week, delightful, John Keats Bleed. Rub-a-dub-dub, three men in a sub, pondering their proclivity to spread radioactivity while their minds wander to a disturbing ponder. After we've nuked the bad guy nations to protect and defend the Stars and Stripes corporations, when this sub's war is peace is complete and it becomes obsolete, then the dilemma, we simply can't duck it, when war is peace becomes a rust bucket, a somewhat problematic factor, what do we do with the bloody reactor? Good morning.
Australia is a crime scene. It's unfinished business, this crime. People got to understand that it was a military exercise. It was military in the first fleet. It was Captain James Cook. It was Captain Arthur Phillip. Right through the history of Australia, it's a military exercise. Our people have suffered greatly because the white man is not prepared to act honourably and legally. Still the case in this country today. This is 3CR. And you're back with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast and uh, we've got uh, Dr Vince Scapatura on the line to unpick some the new military uh, adventurism coming out of the LMP federal government. Hello, Vince, how are you? Oh, I'm very well, thank you. Pleasure to be with you. Yeah, yeah. Very weird. It was a very weird a rearrangement of the chess pieces last Thursday when uh, the... Uh, uh, Prime Minister decided to announce the uh, nuclear-powered subs and a new uh, alliance called ANCUS. I don't know if I've said that right. ANCUS? AUKUS. AUKUS is the way it's being described, the acronym, yes. AUKUS, which is a bit like a um, prehistoric bird, really. (laughs) 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 And it's the forever, he's talking about the, you know, the forever... um, Alliance. Um, yeah. What what's this all about? I mean, I mean, it, it's uh, it's really very strange. It was strange. It was very uh, surprising. It was quite extraordinary that uh, this was presented to us Australians as kind of a fait accompli. Yeah. There was no uh, discussion or consultation or parliamentary scrutiny. Uh, there is going to be a a, a plan over the next 12 to 18 months to discuss how to implement the decision, but no discussion about the decision itself. So in that sense, I think it was highly anti-democratic. It was extraordinary that Australia and the US and the UK were able to keep this under wraps for so long. They've obviously been planning this for several months, if not longer, uh, and uh, and there were no leaks about it, which is quite unusual. Um, so I, I do think it came as a surprise in that sense. But But on the other hand, it's just a trajectory that Australia and the United States in particular have been on for quite some time now, an ever-increasing integration between Australia and US militaries, increasing integration into um, strategically uh, in terms of uh, operational concepts, uh, military operational concepts that uh, Australia and the United States forces train and uh, just most recently in the Talisman Sabre exercises, for example, which ended in August this year. Um, and uh, although 
the United States and Australia and the UK tried to present this as not directed at any particular one country, it's very clear that this is all about China. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it, it's, there's a couple of things uh, that I wanted to bring up. Uh, it doesn't seem to me that it's actually necessary for Australia to be more bound than it already is. It's already been uh, uh, our, our Navy and our Air Force and all the rest of it. it despite what uh, the rhetoric of uh, keeping our, our borders, uh, you know, it's about our national security and all the rest of it, we've been completely suborned by the American project. Yes, I mean, these. The, the set, there's more to this than just the uh, nuclear-powered submarines. That's um, you know, the most... Uh, important part of the deal, but it's not the only part, or the announcement, I should say. There are other parts to it, too. Uh, but just if we focus on that for a moment, yeah. uh, why does Australia need nuclear-powered submarines? That's right. I mean, why why the switch from uh, from diesel to nuclear power? It's an extraordinary... We should acknowledge first it's an extraordinary shift. Yeah. Um, Australia will be the uh, first country to possess a nuclear-powered submarine that isn't a nuclear-powered... A nuclear weapon state. Only nuclear weapon states have nuclear power submarines. Uh, the United States has not shared this technology with any other country except Britain, and it did that all the way back in 1958. And even maybe five or ten years ago, it was unthinkable that the United States would share this very, very sensitive uh, technology, or any nuclear-powered state would share this kind of technology with any other state. So it's ext- it's extraordinary in that sense. But, yeah, the question is, why why do we need nuclear-powered submarines? Well, nuclear-powered submarines are superior to diesel ones because of the the range and the speed uh, at which they can um, at which they can deploy. Yeah. So if you're looking for defending the continent, the Australian continent, then range is not so much of an issue. Yeah. Um, but so it's if a cover. You want to send your if you want to send your submarines right up to the coast of China in the South China Sea, and you want to loiter there for a couple of months, well, then you need a nuclear-powered submarine to do so. So it's very clear that uh, this is one part of a whole series of of decisions, announcements that uh, Australia has made over the last 10, even 20 years, um, but particularly the last decade, uh, that is about augmenting America's uh, power with respect to its uh, rising tensions and conflicts with with China. And in fact, that's exactly what the defence officials, the senior defence officials who briefed journalists as a backgrounder before the announcement had said. Um, They had said that this nuclear capability uh, which we are providing Australia will augment Australia, uh, US uh, uh, capabilities. Now there's uh, there's so many things in there, like it's so undemocratic it's so it's such a huge announcement. It's undemocratic. Also, it's against the principle of uh, no, no nuclear. This is this just opens a huge can of worms. Uh, the other there's a whole range of other things too. Uh, uh, there's been quite a lot of American-oriented uh, discussions coming out of places like La Trobe University that focus on um, the. Uh, Indo, uh, what is it? Uh, Indo Pacific. Yeah, and they've set up a, a place in Western Australia, in Perth, right? They've, the Americans have are, are focusing on that side of the continent as opposed yeah. to the more populous side of the po- continent. So it's obviously American um, interests rather than Australian interests we're talking about. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, China does not pose a serious high-level military threat to Australia, except 
in the case of a US war with China, in which China would undoubtedly be targeting US forces on Australian soil in the northern and western parts of Australia, where US forces are in fact concentrated. Um, and of course, the other element of this is uh, the Pine Gap intelligence facility in the heart of Australia, uh, just outside of Alice Springs, which would undoubtedly be crucial for uh, US war fighting, uh, not just in China, but really anywhere in Asia or the Middle East. Um, so yes, it, it, and it, in fun, incidentally, although the US alliance is considered to be and has for a long time the cornerstone of Australia's security, at least with respect to China, uh, it's only because of our strong alliance with the United States, with our integration with uh, the, the US military in very profound ways, militarily, intelligence, as I've mentioned before, in terms of training and operational concepts, uh, that uh, China might see a uh, attack on Australia as something with which it might plausibly consider. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, there is no there is no prospect that China would undertake a unilateral military strike mm-hmm. on Australia in the absence of a of a China U.S. war in which Australia was supporting the United States, in which American forces were being uh, projected from northern Australia. And I've got to remember that uh, it's it's the U.S. that is a um, predator. Uh, China has, uh, I mean, maybe in its uh, very long history, had uh, overtaken places like Vietnam and, uh, uh, you know, like it's you know, had uh, kind of uh, 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 washed over its local, uh, closer uh, regional. Uh, countries, but it it isn't. Uh, oh, and it's and Tibet, I suppose. But it, it considers the places that it's actually annexed as being part of China. So they don't. You know what I mean? Like they're not uh, yes. expeditionary, yep. as it were. No, no, no. As China hasn't been uh, at war with uh, another country since the late nineteen seventies with Vietnam. The United States, in comparison, has been at war almost every year with several countries. Um, since 19, you know, since the Second World War, um, and that's not to say that there are not concerns about China's rising power. It's a militarization of the of the South China Sea, uh, the disputes that it has with its regional uh, uh, nations, the its internal policies, um, uh, re- internal repressive policies with respect to Hong Kong, with respect to Xinjiang, with respect to uh, uh, Taiwan. Um, these are all concerning, but and and I would agree when the Australian government and the US government calls on China to demilitarise the South China Sea, for example. Uh, But notice that the calls are only for unilateral demilitarisation. They're not for mutual demilitarisation. There are two large powers that militarise the South China Sea. Uh, China is one, the United States is the other, and it has been the overwhelming dominant military power uh, in in East Asia uh, and in the Indo-Pacific for quite a number of decades. China is understandably, feeling vulnerable, uh, does not accept that it should uh, um, succumb to well, uh, hundreds of US military bases, uh, war gamings on its borders um, and around its territorial seas, hundreds of intelligence surveillance reconnaissance missions, which it considers to be you know, provocative and preparation of the battlefield in, uh, in, in preparation for war. And it's attempting to uh, kick the United States out of its uh, of its local air and maritime approaches with you know, integrated air and missile defence systems, its asymmetric capabilities, and the United States doesn't like that. 
it wants to be able to project its military power to every corner of the world uncontested. And so the kinds of weapons platforms that it's investing in and the kinds of weapons platforms, in fact, that Australia is encouraging Australia to invest in, and that, which we are investing in, are, and the, the war games which we're participating with the United States, as I mentioned uh, earlier, Intelligence and Sabre, are all about at re- attempting to re-establish U.S. military dominance um, in, um, in this part of the world. Yeah, yeah, because they're practicing um, island hopping and uh, small incursions, yeah. right? That's what they're that's, right. Yes, yeah. yeah. So this is in response to to China developing largely, um, you know, short and intermediate range ground based missile systems, um, which uh, make it much more difficult for the United States aircraft carriers and and other force projection capabilities to um, to project, you know, within several hundred kilometres of China's coast. Um, and uh, and so the, the United States military is undergoing a huge transformation at the moment uh, in terms of uh, operational doctrines and weapons platforms and so on, in order to um, in order to penetrate and disintegrate. In the words of the U.S. Army, penetrate mm-hmm. and disintegrate armies, uh, China's kind of protective defensive area access area denial bubble, which is how which is what the terminology is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and, and Australia is being is being roped into this. And these nuclear submarines, they, they are nuclear-powered submarines, are very much a part of this. Just way back in 2013, an influential U.S. think tank, the Centre for Strategic and Budgetary Assessments, um, produced a report urging Australia to purchase nuclear-powered submarines to assist the U.S. in a war against China. And they detail a whole plan about the way in which uh, Australian nuclear-powered submarines could be used to you know, impose a distant blockade on China or to hunt Chinese submarines. Um, so this has been on the cards for a long time, but um, I didn't think anyone actually expected Australia to take this uh, dramatic action, certainly even a few years ago. So it's yeah, quite yeah, an important, well, um, important and astounding development. Yeah, uh, Morrison, uh, his his motivations are quite interesting. Uh, they're completely self-serving, always self-serving. It's funny, you know, because uh, before the Iraq war, I remember thinking and that's a long time ago, I remember thinking uh, the Cold War uh, Cold War um, edifice has fallen, so they'll have to create a new bad guy. And I remember yeah. tossing it around in my mind, thinking, well, it, it's either the Middle East or it's China. Oh, they're too frightened of China, so it has to be in the Middle East. And mm-hmm. so basically uh, all the, you know, like if you can... If you can uh, make place the bet, if I was going to place the bet, you know, 20 years ago living in Fitzroy and know that this was what was going to be the outcome, then uh, obviously this complex issue that uh, Morrison talked about, I mean, he, used, he, he bandies around these words like, I want to make it clear this is complex, significant and comprehensive. But, of course, it's light on figures. And the business about... Um, Oh, we're starting again after spending $90 billion on, uh, with a deal for a, comp- a French company that was renowned for its shady deals. Yes, uh, and, you know, that, that number didn't start off at $90 billion. No, And it was going to be much more than that, probably. Yeah. And these new nuclear... The Prime Minister's already acknowledged that it will likely... These new nuclear-powered submarines will cost more than what had been assessed for the conventionally-powered submarines. Yeah. Uh, which is one of the reasons why Australia didn't go with the nuclear option in the first place. There's a whole host of reasons, but one of them was a huge amount of cost. And the fact that, as I mentioned before, all other powers that have a nuclear-powered submarine uh, program have a civilian nuclear uh, defence 
industry uh, and also have um, uh, you know, nuclear weapons. Uh, so this has real implications in terms of uh, in terms of proliferation of nuclear weapons. Yeah. I, mean, I know we're not we're not acquiring nuclear weapons, um, but the the uranium which is used to power the uh, nuclear powered submarines is in fact bomb grade, highly enriched uranium. So Australia will have to take delivery of these uh, reactors with this highly enriched uranium from the United States and use it to power its submarines. Uh, there's always been a loophole in the non-proliferation treaty which which allows um, the safeguards and monitoring of uh, highly enriched uranium to uh, to be avoided if there were to be used in a non-explosive device, primarily a, a nuclear-powered submarine. Um, but it's never been tested because no country, um, no non-nuclear weapons country has ever used a highly enriched uranium for a, uh, a nuclear-powered submarine program. And so there are concerns that this will open up a loophole for other non-nuclear weapon states to then say, well, we need to develop highly enriched uranium because we want to develop uh, nuclear-powered submarines, and then that could be a very um, small step away from going from once you have the highly enriched uranium to then getting a nuclear bomb. So it has um, yeah, implications for, for nuclear proliferation as well. And, of course, it sets up the, the prospect of, of a regional arms race. And, uh, South Korea and Japan have both in the past indicated um, a willingness or a, or a desire to uh, produce nuclear-powered submarines. So um, this is a this is a, um, a not a a precedent which is increasing um, stability and security for Australia. It's it's the opposite. It's funny too because it's like a huge slush fund because uh, twenty forty is twenty years away. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting because on the one hand, there's this unprecedented danger, this very immediate threat that we are facing apparently from China. There's been uh, talk about, um, you know, Australia's kind of 1930s moment and and, mm. and, um, and and yet at the same time, if the threat is so great, why are we able to wait, you know, 20 years before we, before we perhaps receive our first, um, our first um, a nuclear-powered submarine? Yeah, yeah. So there is a bit of a mismatch. Um, yeah, it, it's there. a setup. They're setting. Uh, they've been doing a lot of work uh, talking to the, all those various countries like India and and Japan and South Korea. And I mean, there's been quite a lot of manoeuvring around this whole exercise of uh, you know, like increasing uh, Japan's uh, military um, capacity, or you know, like a whole range of things been going on yes. over yes. a number of years. Um, yeah. But there was this other thing that's slightly off centre, which is to do with the UK uh, connection. Now, um, when the UK went out of the EU, it's now it's now become completely obvious that all the things people said about its inability to actually uh, run a, a a reasonable economy <laughs> because it's outside the yeah. EU has actually happened. Like all the things that they said, like, you know, they don't have enough truck drivers, they can't sell yeah. their produce, blah, 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 right? Yeah. There's a whole range of things. And I remember going to a, a, a big end of town thing around how Australia, before it all happened, that the, these people were uh, 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 gleefully talking about how Australia will have a uh, free deal arrangement with uh, England. And it was because the English were acting as if 
having deals with countries like Australia and a few others would mean offset the EU debacle, right? Um, yep. Is that the same thing that's going on here when we've got this weird, uh, you know, UK-US uh, alliance? What's that all about? It's, it is very strange. Um, I think there is, an, as you, were, as you um, rightly um, commented, um, the decision of Brexit was a shot in the foot for, for the UK, a self-inflicted wound in terms of its, um, in terms of its global um, economic and uh, power. Um, and, and, and I think this deal is actually a further indication of the UK's kind of waning global influence. The fact, as I mentioned, that the United States is now willing to share with Australia what it only ever previously had shared with the UK is a recognition that uh, that uh, the, the United States sees Australia in the 21st century uh, in the same way that it saw the UK in the uh, 20th century uh, as a kind of uh, a bridge with which to project power, not in Europe, but in this case in the Indo-Pacific. Um, in fact, that same report that I mentioned before, the uh, CSBA report back in 2013, which was urging Australia to purchase uh, nuclear-powered submarines um, amongst a whole heap of other uh, upgrades and investments, which interestingly have, in fact, come to pass in terms of infrastructure, air-based upgrades and so mm, on, yeah. which we can talk about if you like. Yeah. Um, but we don't but have enough time. Report, well, we don't have enough time, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, that same, but you're that, completely that same, right. <laughs> yes, that, that same report argued that uh, Australia in the 21st century is perfectly suited to become... Um, America's most special relationship, and to serve as a bridging power uh, into Asia, or as I um, like to as I like to call it, American an, an American suburb. Right. Yep. Yeah, an adjunct to, to to the United States, and again, the United States is, would not share this type of technology with Australia without some kind of quid pro quo. I think there would be a huge expectation that Australia would um, participate in the kinds of uh, military activities in the region that the United States would expect after sharing this very uh, sensitive technology with Australia. And, of course, it, it further ties Australia to the yeah. United States for generations because unless we build our own um, uh, civilian nuclear industry, and that is a danger, I mean, it, it could yeah. be a slippery slope that way, so that's one thing to think about. But if we don't, then it means that we are reliant on uh, the United States to maintain, to, to, to service and to provide us with their nuclear reactors for... Uh, this very important part of our defence infrastructure for generations to come. So that, in, in a sense, it further undermines Australia's sovereignty and independence. Well, we have to finish it there. We're right up to the wire. But uh, we'll we'll talk again, Vince. I find this absolutely riveting. Absolutely. More than happy to come on again. Thanks, Thank mate. Thank you. And that was... That was uh, Dr. Vince Scapatura, and we really are up against the, the wire. Up Coming up next is Asia-Pacific Currents, and we'll go out with Mia Dyson. Roll on. Rolling with you, all Sunday afternoon. I never thought I could be so stench when you call me
searching the mountains, searching the dimes and the cars, wondering where my next move You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.